Now, <clears throat> my subject this morning is the mystery of godliness. And I didn't come up with that title. Paul did. Only he called it the great mystery of godliness. If you've been a Christian, you probably heard in your experience as a Christian, you've heard that if you do your part, God will do his part. And so it's kind of left up to you. And then you have heard, no doubt, that if you are to grow in Christ, if you are to be what Christ wants you to be, then you should study your Bible every day. You should have quiet time. That's just time just between you and God. And you should have prayer time. And that seems to be a formula that many, uh, many fellowships have to grow in God's grace. There's something to that, but it's really not true. And that's what I want us to find out this morning. What is this mystery of godliness? What did Paul mean when he said that it is a great mystery? Because all of us are searching, it seems like. Every Christian that I know, if I went to any church in the community and asked for a raise of hands of how many of you trust and love God, every hand would go up. Every single hand. But is it what they really believe? Do they really trust God? Do they really think that he is what the Bible says he is? And so we're going to find out this morning about this mystery. And I will assure you one thing, that once we grasp it, it will change our relationship with God forever. Last week, I spoke on the subject of contentment. The world says that contentment comes from getting what we want. The Bible's definition for contentment comes from being satisfied with God. And so maybe the question should be, are we satisfied with God? Now, <clears throat> being Christians, we would all say, yes, we are. But are we? That's the real question. Are we down deep? Are we satisfied with God? Paul wrote, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I, I am in. In order for us to learn or to find contentment, the believer somehow has to come to the realization that he can have a joyful relationship with God. And it's important that they understand their union with Christ, what it means to be united in Christ. You see, we were all made to live in fellowship and communion with God himself. We were designed that way. I remember when I first became a Christian, I heard that man was created with a vacuum with an emptiness that only God can fulfill. Only God can do it. Paul uses the phrase 
in Philippians. In Christ, in the Lord, and in Him. And Paul, in his letters, he writes this 160 times. He puts emphasis about being in Christ. Paul's goal is to win the prize in Christ, he says. And then he says, believers should stand firm in the Lord. And then the peace of God guards the heart and the mind of the believer in Christ. So there's a lot of emphasis, this in Christ. And of course, we place a lot of emphasis on that here. The riches of God's glory are found, according to Paul, in Christ Jesus. That's where we're going to find our richness of life is in Christ. And the moment you come to realize that only God can make a man godly, you are left with no other option than to try and find God, to let God be God in you and through you. What happens is this. If we do not enter into the mystery of godliness and allow God to be the origin of his image within us, we will seek God through external rules and regulations and we will be asked to conform our behavior to whatever fellowship we may find ourselves in. In America, there's over 300 different denominations. I've said it before, I'll say it again, that it seems like church is a buffet. You can find whatever you want. It's out there. Now, <clears throat> according, I'm going to go to Colossians 2, 20. According to the Bible, it says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things designed to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, notice what the, what the Bible says, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. So what then is this mystery of godliness? In 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, which was Jesus Christ, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So we know by reading the Bible that godliness is a mystery. Well, what is this mystery? Did God create man 
so that you have the capacity to imitate God? There's a lot of Christians who believe that. That they are here to imitate God. And they don't understand why they can't. Many years ago, in the Christian world, there was a a real movement, especially with our young people. And uh, it was a a bracelet that they used, and it was uh, that WWJD. So when you were tempted, you would look at that bracelet, and it says there that WWJD, what would Jesus do? And that you simply ask yourself that question. So if temptation came, you would say, okay, what would Jesus do? And then hopefully you would do what you think Jesus would do. But here is the problem. Godliness or God-likeness is the direct and exclusive consequences of God living in a person. Any other way, any other way, any other formula, any other four-step, ten-step, twelve-step program, will do you absolutely no good. It is Christ in a person. That is the answer. We have reduced God to a theological formula, an ethical code of conduct. In other words, we judge people how they perform. And that's what Christians do all over. If you don't do exactly what they think is the right thing to do, they judge you. One aspect of the mystery of God is that God cannot be seen. Now, I want you to follow me very closely on this. We're going to go to Genesis 1. See if I can get it up on the screen. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then it says, and God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female He created them. Now, there's a problem here. And that is that this does not mean that man was created physically in the shape of God. Nor that God looks like a man. We do not know what God looks like. In fact, the Bible says in John 1.18... No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In other words, Jesus Christ has explained the Father. No one has seen God at any time. Now, that's what the Bible says. And we know from Scripture that God is invisible. Notice what Paul wrote to Timothy. Now to the king eternal, immortal, 
invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You'll notice here in 16, it says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. The Bible is very plain on the deity of the Trinity. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was equal with the Father. So there is a, there is a problem. If God has, if no man has seen God, and Jesus Christ is God, is there a contradiction? The Bible says that no man has seen God, and Jesus is God. So how does that work? It is part of this mystery that we're going to discover this morning. The Bible says that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. In 1 Timothy, we already read, Great is the mystery of godliness who was revealed in the flesh. And then in John 1.18, which we already looked at, the only God who is at the Father's bosom, or in some translation, by his side. But do you remember when Philip said to the Lord, Lord, Show us the Father. And Jesus replied to him, Have you been with me so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And you ask me, Show us the Father? So how do we reconcile what Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then we go to John, and John says, no man has ever seen God at any time. And Paul says that God is invisible. You cannot see God. So how do we reconcile this? The answer is when Jesus Christ was here on earth, he could be God and be man at one and the same time. But he could not behave as God and behave as man at the same time. If he had behaved like God, which he could have because he was God, then the Bible says no man has seen God. God is invisible. So what had to take place? In order to see God, he had to be made in the likeness of man and found in the form of a human being, and he had to behave as only man. In Philippians 2.7, but he emptied himself 
taking the form of a bondservant and be made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, most of us have read that text many, many, many times. It becomes a little bit confusing here. Found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So, we already know that Christ became the sole expression of the glory of God. He is the perfect imprint and the very image of God's nature. He is the exact likeness of the unseen God. The visible, Christ was the visible representation of the invisible. He humbled himself to become obedient. Now this means he took on the attitude of total dependence upon his father. Now I want you to think for just a moment. This is God. And the Bible says that he became obedient. I mean, just think about that. God becoming obedient? God is perfect. God is complete. God is everything. What does the Bible mean when it says he became obedient? The Bible is saying that only, only if he was prepared to behave as man only. That is the only way he could have been tempted. You cannot tempt God. That was the only way he could be tempted, if he agreed to behave as man. He humbled himself to become obedient. In John 12, 49, for I did not speak, this is Christ saying, I did not speak my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And then he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. This is Jesus Christ who took on the likeness in the form of man, saying, I can do nothing on my own initiative because I agreed to behave only as man. I can do nothing on my own initiative, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Wow. God said that he does not even do his own will. The answer is when Jesus Christ took on the human form, the likeness, he became the, the visible of the invisible God. 
For I can do nothing on my own, he says. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then the Bible says in Hebrews that he was willing to taste death. So we go to Hebrews 2, 9, but we, <clears throat> but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of the death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Everyone. He would taste death for everyone. Not just for a few, but for everyone. Here is the good news. It is only the Spirit of God acting within a man who can enable him to behave as God intended him to behave. In 2 Peter, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, here it is. He has already given us every Christian. He has already given us everything we need in life and in godliness. We can't create it by reading our Bible, by praying, by doing all. He's already given it to us. In other words, he takes, it takes God to be man. God created man to be inhabited by God for God. And how did he do this? And this is my, one of my favorite texts. What did God do when you said and asked him into your heart? When you said yes to Christ, yes, I want you to come into my life. Follow what he said he would do. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, I want you to look for just a moment here. It says, I will give you a new heart. So he gives us a new heart. And then he says that I will put a new spirit. Now, you notice that spirit is translated with a lower S, meaning human spirit. He says, I will put a new human spirit, you were born with the spirit of Adam. And now that you ask Christ to come into, his, into your life, he says, I will give you a new heart, and then I will give you a new human spirit. You were in Adam, and now you are in Christ. I will take that, that heart of stone from you, and give you a heart of flesh. Now notice what he's going to do with your heart of flesh. He says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you. It will cause you to do what God desires you to do. It will cause you to do that. It's not something that you have to do. It will cause, he will cause you to want to do it. Now will you always do it? No. Why? Because of all this stuff that comes up here. 
all this information that's fed up here. And sometimes we listen to the flesh and that's when we sin. But God covers us then too. He says, your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. So, here's a wonderful thing that happened to us. We receive that new spirit. He gives us a new heart. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.17 he says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Remember, he gave you a new human spirit. He gave you a heart of flesh, and then he filled that with the Holy Spirit. And now he says that you are one with him. Your union with Christ is solid. You are one with him, and you are one with him forever. The Bible says he will never leave us, nor forsake us. We have been schooled somehow to believe that if we do something wrong, if we, do, if we, if we sin and, and, and go through all of this, that there is something wrong with us. That we're somehow, we're not depending upon God enough. God has already said that he has already given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Now, Jesus Christ was called the second Adam. Adam was born without the propensity towards sin, the leaning towards sin. You and I, we were born with the propensity to sin. We sinned before we even knew what sin was. And God covered us. Jesus Christ, when he agreed to behave only as man, he knew what it was to be tempted. He knew the struggle that we would go through. And he covered us. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, I will, I will remember your, I will not hold your sins against you. I will not hold them against you. Because at your core... You have everything what God said you would have. You have a new heart. It is your desire. It is your desire to do what God desires you to do. You don't always do it, but that's your desire. You, and you've heard me say this over and over again, you are rock solid at your core. The battle that we fight is up here. And when we listen to the things up here, then we get confused. It is only the Spirit of God acting within a man who can ever enable you to behave as God intended you to behave. In John 1, 4, the Bible says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The best illustration that I could find anyway, is how God works, is electricity. And we have an electrician here. <laughs> and the, that's the best example that I know of because no one has seen electricity at any time. 
No one has seen God at any time. Yet an electric bulb is so designed that whenever it receives that invisible current, expression is given in the invisible in terms of the light. The current is the cause. Light is the effect. I want you to think about that for just a moment. God, Jesus Christ in you is the cause and you are the effect. That's what it means for Christ living in you, the hope of glory. God himself becoming visible so that not man's physical form, but his capacity to behave was designed by the means of having Christ living in you, expressed through you, his nature and his character. The mystery of godliness is having Christ live in you. He is the cause, you are the effect. When that really sinks in, he is the cause. The way you treat people, the way you work at whatever job you may do, whatever you do, he is the cause, you are the effect. When they, people would, I've, through the years I've heard, you know, I met this person and it just seemed like Christ was in him. Christ was in her. Just the way she talked, the way she acted. I don't know. I just felt that, I don't know. Something was different. Yes, yeah, something was different. That individual was the effect. And God was the cause. In Ephesians 4.24, it says, and put on the new self. You see, when we believe that we are new, then God says, put it on, wear it, believe it, experience it. And you'll find a life that you've never had before. You don't have to follow any formula. You don't have to... It's, it's not necessary to read your Bible. Listen, the apostles, they couldn't even read most of them. It's not you doing anything. It's you allowing Christ to live in you and through you. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's not conforming to a bunch of rules and regulations. No. It's allowing God to be the cause and you be the effect. What a wonderful, what a wonderful life God has given to us. For us just to sit back and let Him work in us and through us. What a marvelous experience. Put on the new self, which is the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. All you need to say is this. Lord Jesus, you are, for me, just what I need. I need a Savior. I need a Redeemer. 
and I need it forever. Jesus Christ is asking us by faith to walk in the Spirit, to take one step at a time. That's all he's asking us to do. Take one step at a time, and for every new situation that you will face in life, you'll take a new step. And no matter what that may be, you'll hear Christ saying to your heart, he's in your heart, you're going to hear him say, I am. And for you to say by faith, yes, you are. That's all you need to do. And God will transform your life forever. Just the realization that God says, I am. And you, knowing whatever you know, you know one thing, that he is. He is God. And he is there for you every step of the way. True godliness leaves the world convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only explanation for you is Jesus Christ. I don't care who knows you. I don't care what they know about you. That's immaterial. God living in you is all that that person needs to know, and he can see it, and he can hear it by the tone of your voice, by the way you treat your spouse, by the way you treat your children. They know it. They know it. And the only explanation for you, man, something's different about that person. And they see an unseen God through what you say, for how you feel, for what you do, how you treat people. They see it all because it's the expression of God living in you. Godliness is not the consequences of your capacity to imitate God. But the consequences of his capacity to reproduce himself in you and through you. What an awesome God we have. He's an awesome God. Jesus Christ agreed to take on humanity for every single one of us. Even he wanted to experience death for every single one of us because we're going to face it. We're going to face it. And every single one of us here in this room, we made up our mind without really knowing everything, without understanding everything, we said somehow, some way, God, I don't know if you're there. I don't, I, I don't understand everything. But it's all I know is I need something. And Christ came in. He cleaned house. He forgave you for all of your sins. And he's living in your heart at this moment. You have an awesome God. You have a great heart. You're everything that God wants you to be. You're in the process of learning and growing. 
I've known the Lord for over 50 years. I'm still in the process of learning and growing and knowing him better each and every year. What an awesome God we serve. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the truth that has set us free. Just the understanding of knowing that we are bonded with you, that we are united with you, we are one spirit with you. We praise you and we thank you for that. Now I pray that you'll continue to meet the needs that each one of us have. We're all different. But we all love you, Lord. Some of us have a hard time learning how to love. But we're in that process. That process of sanctification where you are dealing with us one step at a time. And we thank you and praise you for that. Now watch over each one of us. Bless our loved ones. Meet their needs wherever they are. Watch over them. Take care of them, Lord. Just like you are taking care of us. Bless us now, for we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.